So I had a, a bit of a flashback uh, to my early days when I heard recently that uh, there's this band called Dinosaur Jr. Okay, got a couple heads nodding. All right. A band called Dinosaur Jr. that was kind of big, like never super big. That's probably why you don't know them. Uh, but they were a lot of fun to listen to in the 80s and 90s, and they kind of peaked probably in the 90s. They've been doing stuff ever since. But one song they recorded in 94 that never was a single, like, okay, back then you bought music on, like, a tape or a CD if you, like, you know, could afford a CD player. Uh, there was no, like, buying one song at a time, right? So this song uh, that's on this album, uh, just randomly this weekend in Japan, starts topping the charts. Like, just, and no one can figure out why uh, until someone revealed that, well, you know, actually, you know, some reality show played it, and that's why everyone started, hey, what is that song? And then it just went, went viral, went crazy. This one song by a band called Dinosaur Jr. And when I heard about this, uh, it's, I don't know if you ever hear a song that you loved from a long time ago, and you're like, it just takes you back. You, you want to put on your flannel shirts that's, you know, unbuttoned flannel shirt with a t-shirt underneath. You want to get your Doc Martens back on. You want to get, you know, get back in the 90s mode or whatever that is for you. Um, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, then, you know, there's a version of that for you too. Um, maybe back when Justin Bieber just started. Maybe that, that's it or uh, uh, whatever. But uh, in all that, there's a sense of, hey, I know them. Hey, that's, like that, that's special to me. I have a connection with them. I knew them way back then, and now they're famous. Like, this song never charted anywhere, and now it's really famous. And so it's like, hey, I knew that song way back when. It, it kind of brings the, the warm feels, as, as they say now these days. Uh, it brings all the feels out. Uh, but that's kind of what's going on here with Jesus. Jesus is, uh, he's, he grew up in Nazareth. He spent a lot of his formative years there. Um, and he has, you know, really been raised as a carpenter. His father, earthly father, Joseph, was a carpenter. So he would have learned, most likely, his father's trade, apprenticed with him, and spent a lot of time doing that. At some point, we understand from uh, silence, but from deducting scripture, that Joseph, his earthly father, died at some point. So Jesus very likely was uh, a carpenter on his own for a little bit. And at some point, as an adult, he left and began his preaching ministry. He began to get known through all this, and that's why I had uh, Sarah read that first couple verses that Jesus uh, was preaching throughout all the surrounding country, and a report was spreading about him, and he was teaching in all these different synagogues. So Jesus, this carpenter that they've always known as one of their own that never really amounted to much, was all of a sudden famous in all their region. And now he's coming back home. He's coming to Nazareth. He's going to, he's going to be there for a while. And so as was customary, everyone gathers on a, a Sabbath day, and they usually will hand over the speaking privileges to a guest rabbi. And Jesus is this guest rabbi. So they're all excited that he's there. They hand him the scroll, and he gives this amazing sermon, nails it. They love him. They talk, oh, that was amazing. That was a fantastic sermon. Oh, that, you know, the words were... Um, they're amazed at his gracious uh, words. And five minutes later, they try to kill him. That escalated quickly. Like, well, what happened there? What's going on in this story? Well, as we look at this story, how, how we got there, the answer to that question 
will have direct and profound implications for our life today because we see, first of all, that Jesus knew this was going to happen. And yet he came there with a message of love. He loved them anyway. He came to them and went through this anyway, even though he, he knew he was going to be rejected. Uh, he did this anyway, and we are called to love anyway. Love those who may hate us. Love those who uh, hopefully don't want to kill you. Uh, but love those who give you opposition. And so as we look at this passage, we'll see uh, that Jesus was better than they imagined him to be. He was bigger than they imagined he was. And, but he's also more beautiful than they imagined he would be. That he's, he's better, he's bigger, and he's more beautiful. Um, so, so as we look at this, let's dig into the scripture here. He is first, he's better than they imagined. So Jesus uh, returns again to Galilee. And, and he's teaching around. He goes to Nazareth. He reads this passage, and here's what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he gives the scroll back because it wasn't a codex. It wasn't a book. It was a, a scroll rolled up probably on uh, some kind of leather and hands it back to the attendant and says, Today... This has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, it's very likely that they may have taken that as a rhetorical, you know, a rhetorical effect, like saying, today this is fulfilled. Almost like that Jesus would be saying, hey, this is going to happen now. This is the time. This is the year of the Lord's favor. Almost like a political rally speech kind of thing. But whatever it was, the people, their hope was stirred. They got excited. And they thought, yes, this is what's going to happen. But... The truth is that what Jesus was offering was even better than what they were understanding it to be, even bigger. That uh, he is saying that the poor are going to get good news, that the poor have a, have, have a life-changing uh, shift in who's in authority over them, and this will be good things for them, that there's going to be liberty for the captives. This could be prisoners of war. This could be those who were debtors. Uh, this, all kinds of captivity were going, was going on then, and they would be freed, that they, the blind would have their sight recovered. And the oppressed would also get liberty, but the oppressed, that's, that's like they would think of the Romans, right? They would think of the oppression that they see every day because they are occupied by their friendly neighborhood Romans uh, who are there not so in a friendly way, not so much uh, in a selfless way. No, no, no. They were there just to have control and restrict their way of life in many ways. They wanted to be free. And so there's a lot of this that they even barely touched on how big this would truly be. That, that maybe it just sounded like something that, that was just nice to hear. Maybe they thought it was a metaphor, or maybe they thought this was actually going to come, but they understood that this was happening now. He says the year of the Lord's favor is here. And there was a time uh, in the Old Testament, uh, and so then carrying on to this time, where every 50 years there would be one year in those 50 called a year of Jubilee, a year of the Lord's favor. Uh, this could be a reference to that, where every 50 years, if you had any debt, it was canceled. Uh, if you had sold your land, it was returned to you. And so, of course, if you ever sold land, the price would be measured based on how long it is till the next year of Jubilee. But they did that to prevent you know, one family from accumulating all the land and other families from becoming poorer and poorer. It was, it was a reset every 50 years. 
But this was, you know, Jesus saying, this is the, the year of the Lord's favor. The year when, when all this land will just become ours again. And the Romans will leave. Uh, all oppression shall cease. Sickness will end. It was a time that they looked forward to when the Messiah would come and make all things new. Now, the, the, the thing that, that he's saying is, I'm not just going to make things a little bit more tolerable. I'm going to make all things new. I think that's a big distinction. He's quoting Isaiah. And he knows that when Isaiah was writing this, Israel wasn't in a very good place then either. And they're not in a very good place here now. They're not feeling strong. They're not feeling uh, like life is good. But they would love for life to be a little better, right? They would love to, for life to be a little more manageable. However, when, when they think of what the Messiah might do, they, they often thought that maybe he would just help them overcome and overthrow the Romans. They had no idea that he would, uh, the extent of what he would really do, that he would free them, of course, from sin and death. I mean, it's so much bigger than just that, that it was not just uh, making things a little better, but entirely new. Now, this is entirely a first world problem. This is, okay? But there was this conversation, and because it was a first world problem, it was a big conversation in our house. So we had this television that uh, uh, it had this little smart feature that was supposed to connect to the internet and show videos, and it, it didn't work all the time. Like, you have to push it 17 times to work it. I know, first world problem, right? Um, we got it for a Black Friday thing a long time ago, but we also got that warranty with it, the extended warranty. So uh, we thought, it's a lot of hassle to send it in, to ship it in, and to ha but, you know, we have it. It's free. Why don't, you, why don't we try to re repair it? Why don't we try to fix it? And so we actually sent it in four different times, and they couldn't fix it. And so they said, you know what? You get a new one. And so we ended up just getting a new one to replace it. But uh, with all that, like a one that was slightly better was just never going to work. They could never, the technicians that they had could never fully fix that TV. I know it's kind of a silly example, right? But at the same time, it's a picture of, of kind of where they were. They wanted things just a little better. And God was saying, I want to make things entirely new and not just, not just make things a little more tolerable. I want to overthrow death. I'm going to overthrow dying. I'm going to overthrow uh, blindness, not just so that the nations will be able to see how glorious you are, but that, that all will be able to see how glorious I am. Uh, and, you know, sometimes things just need to be new. Uh, in, in my years as a parent, you know, I, I had to calculate this a few times, uh, but I was adding this up, and I think Megan will have matched this, of course, or, or more. Uh, but I've got five kids, and the oldest is 10, and then we've got one who's still in diapers. But over the course of, of that time, I'm pretty sure I've changed about 10,000 diapers. And diapers need to be changed. Like, you can't just improve it slightly. Like, you, you, have, to, you have to, it needs a new one. Like, you can't just say, you know what, live with that for a couple more days because it would save us some money. Like, no, you've got to replace the diaper. And in the same way, we don't need slightly better lives. We need entirely new lives. We need new life. We need new hearts. And, and hearts and diapers both need to be changed, and for the same reason. We, we need new hearts. 
Jesus doesn't want to come into our lives and say, all right, there's some good things going on here and some bad things, and so, so let me help you eliminate the bad things. He says, no, I'm going to. He says, even our righteous deeds are filthy rags, right? He says, I'm not just going to fix those things. I'm going to give you my righteousness. I'm going to take away all of your filth and make you new, and you can live in this new life. And this is so much better than just being a slightly better person. It's more than just your best life now, right? It's, it's a new life, and it begins now, and it continues on for eternity. You know, that's why we make New Year's resolutions. We don't want to be slightly better. They're not New Year's goals. They're not New Year's, like, I mean, maybe we treat them that way, but we want to be completely new people, don't we? We want to not experience the addictions and habits that we hate about ourselves. We, we want to see poverty overflowing with blessing. We don't want to just be a little smarter. Like whenever you have a moment, not where you learn a little fact, but when you like learn wisdom and all of a sudden you see something about life that is totally how you didn't see it before and you realize, oh wow, I wish I knew that back then. But you, you wouldn't have known that you didn't know it. Like we just need new, newness of life. Not just little improvements. And Jesus brings all of it. Uh, and, and that's what he is inviting everyone and proclaiming to, but not just this, but that he himself is the Messiah, that he is the anointed. So he's not just better, it's not just better, but he's actually bigger. He's bigger than they imagined he was. He wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just this hometown hero. He was more than that. And there was, there's some point of friction there because of that. Because they, they wanted him, in so many ways, to be a hometown hero. Everybody wants a hometown hero, or to be a hometown hero. Like, to have someone, Nazareth, a relatively small town, to put Nazareth on the map, right? Uh, a, a place that like, they want Jesus to be, uh, they want to believe that they can be maybe good like him. All these things. So anyway, they, they were delighted at what they heard and saw from Jesus. He's not just, uh, but again, it's better than what even they were perceiving but he's also bigger. They love the idea of Jesus more than the actual person and teachings of Jesus. And, and Jesus wants our hearts. And because he gets the sense that he's becoming their hometown hero, he spoke directly to their hearts in a way that forced them to make a decision about him. And that, that decision, essentially, was to crown him or to kill him. That really... Jesus is saying in this text that there's no middle ground. He doesn't let it stay on the middle ground. It's like immediately he says, let me tell you more about how this gospel works. All right, so I'm going to dig into that here. Because they, they spoke well of him. They marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They said, hey, isn't this Joseph's son? Like, he's one of us. Thinking back to Joseph. They remember Joseph. And, uh, you know, it, but all that, that warm feelings of, hey, uh, I knew them back then. I knew him back then. And look at what he's become. We're so proud of him. But he keeps going. And by the way, why would anyone keep talking at this point? I mean, if Jesus, he's done this and everyone is so pleased with him, why would anyone in their right mind keep going? You know, it's, I don't know, like the equivalent of, of, of posting something on, on the internet and it becomes viral and everyone loves it. And then you like comment on it and totally change everyone's perception of why they liked it in the first place. Like, no, you ride the, the wave of fame. That's what people do, right? Why would anyone do that? You've, you've got something good going on here. They think you're a hero. Well, he knows. First of all, he's already said no to that temptation a couple weeks ago, remember? 
that, that Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the world, and, and, and he said, no, you should worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He knew that temptation. He had already said no to the idea of being that kind of hero. He also knew that, that hometown heroes pay a price, that, that essentially in, in exchange for that fame, that, that he's essentially going to be used and viewed as someone uh, who is only going to be famous as long as he's doing something good for them. And so he pushes further. And before I go further, I just want to say, like, there are going to be times that we will sense that people view us as, hey, they'll love us and they'll say good things about us, but, but once we get the sense we're no longer doing something good for them, that they might back off or, or change their viewpoint of us. You get the sense that, that we were just there uh, to, to help them in their plan for their life, and, and maybe we were just a prop along the way. And when that happens, Jesus does call us to love them in the midst of that anyway. And as we get a little further on here, we'll see how in the world we can do that. Because one, when people love us, you don't want to stop that. When, people, when you have approval, there's no, it's probably more powerful than any drug on the market. But when it does stop, there's nothing that almost hurts more than to feel like you've been used and now you're hated, Right? So how do we overcome that? Well, Jesus keeps pushing, right? He doesn't take the bait. And so he says, hey, doubtless you'll quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Well, you've heard it, you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So the second part there is, hey, hey, show us all the wonderful things that you can do. You know, I know that's coming. Like, I've done this before. I've been to a number of towns where they've heard me coming, and, and they, they want to see miracles. They want to see all these, all these signs and things. King Herod, right before Jesus was crucified, uh, indeed wanted to see Jesus perform a miracle to save his own life. I mean, that's the sense there in, in that, that, uh, that royal courtroom scene where Herod is almost is, is hoping to see some kind of miracle happen. And, um, and if Jesus did it, he probably would have earned favor with Herod and would have been, uh, had his life spared. But, you know, Jesus is not a dancing entertainer, right? Um, but in the second part, too, you know, physician, heal yourself. And they, there's also a sense of when they look at him, I think this is the sense, is that when they look at him, they know that Jesus is this great teacher. But a lot of the great religious leaders and teachers dressed well and, and, and looked, they didn't look as poor as Jesus lived. We know from Scripture that there's nothing remarkable, remarkable about Jesus' appearance, that he had kind of an ordinary appearance. Uh, he didn't wear anything flashy. He just wasn't that kind of a, a guy. And they're looking at him, and they're like, if you're this great teacher, why are you just wearing ordinary clothes? What's the deal with that? So heal yourself, physician, right? If what you're saying is so true, heal yourself. And, and so then Jesus goes even further, all right? He's just beginning, and he says, he says, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but in truth, I tell you, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, a woman who was a widow, a non-Israelite. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, but none of them were cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Jesus is saying the gospel is this good news is only for those who know that they need it. It's only for those who are weak, who are humble. It's not by default 
coming to the people of Israel. It's coming first to the people of Israel, for sure. It's being presented first, but it's going to keep going and keep going. This invitation for this party that God is throwing for anyone who would believe in him, this party is going to happen and the banquet hall is going to be full, but if it's not for people who think they deserve to be there. And if anyone would have been more upset by that, it would have been Israel. And this is complicated, right? Because Israel, for hundreds of years, haven't heard from a single prophet. For hundreds of years, have been living under the oppression of the Romans. Before then, before the Romans, it was other empires that ruled over them. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, Medes, Persians, I mean, everybody. And in their own bitterness and resentment at how their life has gone differently than what they thought it was going to go, they feel, hey, we, we deserve something from you, God. Instead of crying out with humility and receiving Jesus with humility, instead they feel kind of entitled to it. it see, woundedness so often can, can be, you put a band-aid of self-righteousness over that, and it feels really good for a little bit, but it doesn't actually heal the wound. And that's where these people are. They've been hurting. They've been struggling. Life is not what they expected it would be. And they cover that wound with a little self-righteousness. And it keeps them from seeing the beauty of who Jesus is right before them. And I'll get, I'll get to more of Jesus' beauty in just a moment. But, but you know, they needed to know that they're that they were poor. And instead of seeing their need, they had a sense of pride and, and, uh, and, and feeling like they deserved what was coming. That they were captive to their own rules. That they were blind to the beauty of God in front of them. They were obsessed, oppressed rather, oppressed by their own sin and pride. And to get healing, you need to know you need healing. And how many times, I mean, I've known people, people I've loved who, uh, who are dying of cancer, and when they coughed, would just say, oh, I just have a cold. Like, no, 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 you got to go to the doctor. It's more than a cold in this case. You know it's more than a cold. Please go. And sure enough, it was. You know, but we don't like physicians sometimes because uh, they can bring us bad news. They can tell us, but you need the bad news in order to be healed. At least uh, you have to know that first. So Jesus is here saying, I've got something better than you could ever imagine. But he's saying to these people, you're not catching it because you think you deserve. Like you're entitled to something. Your pride, your self-righteousness is healing that wound in a false way. And so the choice, crown him or kill him. They're not going to crown him. He looks too ordinary for them. So they decide to kill him. They, they rush him to, to a cliff. And this cliff, uh, there, there are a number of cliffs. Nazareth is apparently a beautiful place. I mean, you can see pictures of it online. Even TripAdvisor has pictures of Nazareth. Uh, there's, there's cliffs all over. There's a monster cliff just outside of Nazareth, a thousand feet high. There's others that are still high enough that if someone was pushed over, they would be killed. Uh, we don't know exactly where that cliff was, but they rush him. They're filled with fury because when... When you are so, when your wound is covered up with that self-righteousness, there's nothing that'll make you angrier than being told that you're not as good as you think you are, right? And so heartbreakingly, they decide to kill him. 
They were delighting in the nearness and the blessing of Jesus, but they didn't understand his holiness. And, and so anyway, when people come, uh, when people came to him to use him, he loved them anyway. When they wanted to use him and give him fame, he loved them anyway and gave them the truth, gave them the choice of saying, hey, you know what? This is better than you think. It's actually love that he gave them by pushing them because he said to sit on the fence and just to think that I am just a good teacher, one good teacher of many, it's actually not a good place to be. Like you got to choose. Am I worthy of being crowned in your life and heart or, or not? And we're not meant to sit on the fence like that. So it's really love. that. He, but what about us? What about us? When people treat us in a way, uh, in that kind of way, how are we going to find the strength? How are we going to find the, 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 I mean, how are we going to cover up that wound, right? Because that hurts when someone uses us, when we know that they're using us. That hurts. How do we cover that up and find the strength to love them through that? And all of that boils down to will we crown him? Will we crown Jesus even in that moment? Even when things, even when people are turning against us, will we crown him and say, you know what? Somehow in all this, I trust that I'm in your hands. Somehow in all this, I trust that I can trust you and that your heart is good. And I don't understand where I am and why things are going this way, but Jesus, I can trust you because you are king. You are king of all. And that, I mean, in, in the midst of, of all kinds of trials, uh, w- w- our courage is rattled. Our comfort is stretched. You look at Abraham. God called Abraham, take your only son that you've waited 25 years to conceive. And he's finally, you know, old enough to trust you and walk and take care of himself. He's the 12 or so, I think Isaac was. And Abraham, uh, he says, Abraham, go and offer your son as a sacrifice. And Abraham says, Okay. You're, you're, you're the Lord. And he goes and he prepares his son as a sacrifice. And he's got his arm raised with a knife and God stops him and says, now I know what? Now I know that you love me. And so don't kill your son. No, no, no. Here's a ram. Sacrifice that one. That our courage will be rattled. Our comfort will be stretched. But to those who crown him, he gives comfort. And those who crown him live with courage that can't be shaken because it's based on the rock that can't be moved. You and I can be moved all over. We can have courage that is based on our strength. No, no, no. But there is a courage that we can have when we crown him king. And that rock can't be moved. That has a far greater courage. Now, King's Cross, here we gather around the person and teachings of Jesus. We want to grow in his gospel and glorify his name. We need to do this regularly. We want to gather together in all kinds of ways. And that looks, there's no one formula for that. There's all kinds of ways that we are to seek that out with one another. We do that here on Sunday mornings. We have gospel life groups. We have other Bible studies. But there's other ways we can do that too. But this is our focus, right? Because we need to be reminded of who God is, that Jesus is the King. Uh, Jack Miller, I alluded to this before, uh, Jack Miller was a pastor, and he says, God's name is so great that it requires even the enemies of God, the nations, and you and me to be brought in, that this is the gospel. Those who are far off are brought near by the blood of the cross. He says, praise is a form of sanity where you suspend thoughts of the future and dwell in the eternal now, living up, lifting up God, rather, as the center. True praise involves paying attention to God with a surrendered 
heart. Even to glance at us requires God's condescension. What we might expect is for the psalm, this is Psalm 113, I think, to progress to a glorious vision of the Almighty, but instead we see God visiting, the tr- visiting us, visiting the lowly, visiting the trash heap on the outskirts of town, the poorest of the poor, the utterly cast down. God's power is revealed through the weakness of the barren woman, a prominent theme in Scripture. He lifts up the destitute and makes them royalty. He's saying, that this, as we focus on this, it brings us sanity. As we crown him, it helps us live as we really ought to live in newness of life. So he's better and he's bigger. And finally, he's more beautiful. When they heard these things all in the synagogue, yes, they were filled with wrath. They rose and they, 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 they wanted to kill him. But he passed through their midst because there was another day There was another day that Jesus was going to die. It was not going to be this day, but there was a day that was going to come. And, you know, when, what what indeed was it? I alluded to it a little bit, uh, but talking more about how we cover those wounds, our self-righteousness, because our self-righteousness also, it, it also keeps us from seeing God's beauty. Uh, Megan and I, at one season in our marriage, uh, I think we had one or maybe, maybe two kids at the time, but we uh, would go for date nights and have dance lessons and take dance lessons. Maybe I've shared this before, but we would go out and uh, our dance instructors were a lot of fun. They were both like, uh, they were both these, these tiny acrobatic people, uh, and, but they would win these competitions all over the place wherever they went, and they were just, they were great teachers, and it was a lot of fun. But we, you know, of course, you have to learn the dance steps. And after you learn the dance steps separately, then Megan and I would try to dance together. And, and I'm supposed to lead, which is, it felt like a joke because I'm like, oh, this is not going to go well, right? Uh, and Megan's supposed to trust me. Like, okay, does she know who she's trying to trust? Like, how's that going to work? Uh, but it, the more we focused on the dance steps, it never quite clicked, right? And, and it wasn't until we really were focused on each other, and, and that everything started to work well. Like when we're at our best, like we were learning and it was never like amazing. Uh, but it was, as we were focused on each other, it actually kind of worked. Because then I could, uh, then she could kind of see my eyes and maybe where I might lead her. And I could see her and get a little bit of feedback and kind of lead her based on like how I thought just things were going at that moment. And, but if I missed the beauty I mean, the beauty of us being together was the whole point of us dancing in the first place. And I think that is, in so many ways, an illustration of where we can take the Christian life. And if you're new to Christianity, maybe you've seen others stumble in this way. Maybe you've seen from outside, uh, looking into the church, you've seen people more focused on like doing the right things and getting angry at each other when their toes get stepped on and missing the beauty that this Christian life is really dancing with Christ. It's crowning him king and following his lead. It's when we look so much on, on not morality, but moralism, there's a difference. As we focus on moralism, like doing all the right things and, and just get locked into that, like we miss that if we follow Jesus, he'll lead us in good works. But if we're focused more on the little things, we'll miss the beauty of it all. 
And, and those, those things that we do, that, that they're never going to uh, change us anyway. This moralism versus following Jesus. Uh, you know, Marie Kondo is, is a famous name now, and her KonMari method of cleaning up your house. Uh, people have been writing about it. People have been talking about it. And uh, this one article by a CNN contributor goes into how essentially people will try this method of cleaning our house, but it's not going to change our desire for more stuff. Like, so we'll probably end up cleaning our house and, and just think, oh, I could, I could fit a new thing there. Or maybe I sold it at a garage sale. I've got a little bit extra money. Maybe I'll buy a new thing. You know, uh, it doesn't really change our hearts just because we went through the right steps and have a cleaner looking life. But when Jesus comes into our lives, you know, our lives are going to be messy. We have to be willing to let him into our lives messy. He'll clean it up. But the whole point, I mean, the biggest point is that we don't miss the fact that he's there with us. Because he's not just, not just a king, but he's the kind of king who loves us. A king who would go to a cross for us. And he doesn't take that to us to make us feel ashamed. He takes that to us to let us know that we don't have to be ashamed anymore. That there can be intimacy there. Indeed, there's, there's so many ways that, that we can be kind of held back uh, from what we can have with Jesus that there was, a, there was a homecoming queen in Fremont, Nebraska, who I think it was in 2002. She was elected homecoming queen. She was excited to be there. She helped decorate the, the gymnasium for the dance. She was student body president. Uh, she was all-state cello, uh, and she was on the honor roll. She was also a cheerleader. I don't know if she had time for all that, but she did it. Uh, but she forgot her ID, and so she didn't have her student ID, and they wouldn't let her in to the dance. They wouldn't let her into the dance. And she had all these things, like, like, people know me here. Like, what's going on? Like, why won't you let me in? There are actually two different things I can do with this illustration. But I think what I want to say is, is, is this. Because there's like, I could do two things. But I want to say this. That's, that's what moralism can do to our relationship with Jesus. Like, he says, here's all the things that I am. And yet, and yet we can get so stuck on, on making sure he gives us the one thing that, that we want from him. You know, Jesus, I'll, I'll love you and I'll crown you king, but why aren't my finances better? I, I might hold back a little bit from trusting you until you fix that. I want to see your ID. I, I, you know, Jesus, I want to crown you king, but what about my relationship with, with so-and-so? Or what about, what about my career prospects? Or what about, what about my health? What about whatever it may be? And Jesus is saying, don't, get, don't let yourself get caught up with that. I, you know who I am. I'm making myself clear to you. Come in. Let's dance together. Jesus loves the weak. He loves the broken. He loves the needy. And uh, as, as Jack Miller said, just a, one more thing. He says, so, so often uh, we can, we're, so, we're not so much obedient to God as obedient to our own rules, and we're so much more satisfied with the appearance of being near to God than actually being near to God. So Jesus can free us as we crown him with that courage. He can free us as we crown him with that sense of comfort and knowing we want to be the hometown hero, but he frees us even from our desire to want earthly fame because we realize that he is the ultimate hero and that when we go home, he has prepared a home for us. And at that home, when we go to that heavenly home, there's not going to be any rejection. We're going to be fully 
accepted. It has nothing to do with what we can do for the Father, just as Jesus was rejected in Nazareth. No, our welcome, our acceptance will be because of what Jesus did on our behalf. That he, so that we who are poor could be made rich, he himself became poor, left the treasure of heaven and became poor. When he, uh, in order to set the captives free, to set us free from our sin and debt, that he was arrested and held captive and crucified. In order to give sight to the blind, nor that we might see the goodness and glory of Christ, Jesus was blindfolded and beaten, nailed to a cross at the hand of the religious leaders. This is the King who loves us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would continue to show us your glory. Uh, we pray that you would help us to, to set aside, uh, help us to say, to say no, and maybe even just to see through the empty promises that the world gives of, of all the different ways we can be hailed as a hero, all the different ways we can become a celebrity. Father, if you do happen to give us uh, fame, if, if, we, if the world does offer us those things, and, and Father, help us to, even in the midst, not of, just of hardship, but also in the midst of prosperity, Father, help us to crown you Lord of all and lead us, Father, in the midst of that. And if not in prosperity, then also in hardship. If not in, in pleasure, Father, also in pain. Show us that we can trust you for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.